When I was a kid, I had an overwhelming feeling that my parents were stricter than all my friends' parents combined. And I felt like I could hardly do anything. Uh, I couldn't eat a lot of junk food. I couldn't watch The Simpsons, Rugrats, Pokemon, Power Rangers, and like a hundred other shows. Uh, I couldn't say the S word, shut up. I couldn't say the B word, but. I couldn't say the F word, frickin'. I couldn't go anywhere outside where I still couldn't see my house. Uh, I couldn't ride my skateboard without a helmet and knee pads and elbow pads. But worst of all, I wasn't allowed to play on the cliff, which was what we called the very steep hill in my backyard out in the woods. And whenever I broke one of my parents' rules, I was disciplined and shown tough love. And they'd say something like, we're only doing this because we love you, Dylan. And if we didn't dis discipline you, you'd never learn that sin has consequences. And I thought, yeah, whatever. If they really love me, they would let me do what I want to do, right? And so I learned that really the trick was not to stop breaking my parents' rules, but to not get caught breaking my parents' rules. Because if I could avoid getting caught, then I could still do the things that I wanted to do without any trouble. But one time I learned that sometimes you still get caught in a different way. Meaning sometimes God has a way of disciplining you before your parents even figure out what's going on. And I actually have a piece of the original hospital bill right here, which tells me that I learned this lesson on February 19th, 2000, so eight days, wait, 10 days before my eighth birthday. And here's what happened. So my dad was off at work and my mom had to leave the house for some reason, so she left us all home alone. And I thought, okay, great, this is a perfect opportunity to have some fun, right? And uh, so right after she leaves, I start getting on my shoes to go out to the woods. But my little brother Austin, who's always been the good kid in the family, he says, hey, you're not allowed to leave the house when mom and dad are gone. But I don't really listen to him. And I start walking out to the woods and he follows me and he bugs me the whole way out to the woods, pestering me about how I'm not doing the right thing, like Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. <laughs> but I get to the woods and I come to the edge of the cliff and I see about halfway down probably a two foot by four foot piece of rusty sheet metal and I think that looks fun to sled down the cliff on. <laughs> and so I go down and grab it and I climb back up the cliff and I situate myself on this piece of rusty sheet metal and I tell my brother, all right, push me down. <laughs> and at this point, Austin is crying. <laughs> he, he doesn't want anything to do with this. He's upset with me, he's scared for me but I'm an idiot, and I push myself over the edge, and I go shooting down this cliff. And about halfway down, the piece of rusty sheet metal stops, but I continue to slide down, and I tumble down the rest of the cliff, and I am hurt. This was, ouch, painful. And Austin's freaking out, like, he's a freaking out, hysterical crying, you know, and I climb back up the cliff, and when I get to the top, I limp over to this tree, just feeling this pain. I'm like, oh, and I reach behind here and I'm like, oh, there's a, there's a cut on my pants and it feels a little wet and sticky back there. And oh my goodness, it's blood. 
And now Austin like nearly passes out, you know. <laughs> Blood coming from a nice cut on my butt from that piece of rusty sheet metal. And let me tell you, when I had to lay face down on that hospital table to get the cut on my butt stitched back together, <laughs> I felt embarrassed, humiliated, and certain that this was from the hand of God because I had disobeyed my parents. And now I have to get serious. I think there's something really important here. When Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And when Deuteronomy 8, 5 says, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord, your God, disciplines you, Wise and loving parents will discourage bad behavior and disobedience through discipline and tough love to ultimately protect their kids and to warn them about the consequences of sin and to train them up in the way that they should go, which is toward responsibility and righteousness and godliness. And God will lovingly discipline too for the same reasons. But foolish and unloving parents tolerate bad behavior and disobedience and don't discipline. And ultimately, they're, they're giving their kids over to harm. And they're giving their kids over to their own sinful desires. And they're not training them up in the way that they should go. They're actually leading them toward irresponsibility and unrighteousness and ungodliness. And this is what the book of Joel is largely about. It's about the necessity of discipline and tough love and how it's good and not something to be avoided. And about how what is actually really scary is the thought of not being disciplined by God and being given over to our sinful desires. So that's what we're gonna look at this morning. Before we do, let's pray and ask God just to bless our time here together. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, give us understanding, not only in our minds, but also in our hearts. And Lord, show us what you'd have us to see today in your word. Help me, Lord, and help us all. Amen. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Joel. It's sandwiched right between Hosea and Amos, the book of Joel. And if you were here a couple weeks ago when I preached on the book of Hosea, uh, you may recall that I gave kind of an overview of the Old Testament, and I highlighted creation, the fall of man, God's call to Abraham, Jacob's 12 sons whose descendants become known as the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the Israelites' enslavement under Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, the wilderness wanderings, the occupation of Canaan, the period of the judges, Samuel, King David, King Saul, rather Samuel, King Saul, King David, uh, David's son Solomon who became king and established uh, the first temple in Jerusalem, uh, Solomon's wicked son Rehoboam who became king and how 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel rebelled against him and appointed Jeroboam as their king. Hope you all know that. This is what I wanted to get to though. This led to a split in the kingdom of Israel in 931 BC into a northern kingdom, 
10 tribes under King Jeroboam and a southern tribe, two tribes under King Rehoboam in the south, north-south, Israel, Judah. Uh, but it, and during this time, God raised up prophets to call his people to repentance and to return to the, to the Lord. But eventually, the Assyrians conquered and exiled Israel uh, in 722 BC, and then the Babylonians did the same thing to Judah in 586 BC. And then the Old Testament basically ends with some of God's people returning from exile to the land under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And Joel was one of the prophets that God sent specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah. And most scholars believe that he prophesied after the Babylonian invasion in 586 BC, okay? So all that horrible stuff has already happened. And what's particularly interesting about Joel is that usually God's prophets call the people to repent of specific sins, but Joel doesn't highlight any specific sin, though he says that judgment is coming, which, at least when I read the book, kind of shifts my focus off of the people a bit and more onto God himself, which I think is important because one of the main themes of this book is God's judgment in the coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, it's repeated five times in the book. And so the book of Joel is pretty short. It's only three chapters, and it begins with Joel asking Judah to consider the magnitude of something that has recently happened to them. Verses two through three. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. My goodness, what has happened? Verse four. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So evidently, there was a plague of locusts that came into Judah and decimated everything. And, and this picture of a swarm of locusts eating the leftovers of another swarm and then another swarm coming in and eating the leftovers, leftovers, and then another swarm coming in and eating the leftovers of the leftovers, leftovers. In my mind, it's kind of this picture of like a guy who takes some watermelon and he eats all of the red part off of it, leaving the rind, and then he hands it to someone else who eats all the pink part off of it, and then he hands it to another guy who eats all the white part off of it, who hands it to the final guy who just chews up and swallows the rind itself. Total destruction, right? And the text says that the locust plague laid waste the vines, splintered the fig trees, destroyed the fields with their crops, destroyed the pasture for the sheep and cattle. So there's no more wheat, there's no more barley, there's no more grain of any kind, there's no more fruit of any kind, there's no more oil, there's no more wine. And I love this, because there's no more wine, verse five says the drunkards are gonna have to sober up and take a good look at what has happened. And verse nine shows us why this is a serious problem. It says the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. Meaning that small portion of grain and wine that was to be offered in the temple as part of daily worship in the life of Israel, they can't do that anymore. They can't worship God in the way that he had commanded them. But the locust plague 
is undoubtedly from the hand of the sovereign God, which means that God is showing his people through the locust plague and the subsequent cessation of grain and drink offerings that their sin has destroyed their fellowship with him. And this is one of the main points of the book. Our sin destroys our fellowship with God. Sin destroys our fellowship with God. Now, the last time we saw a locust plague was all the way back in Exodus chapter 10. Remember when God sent a series of plagues on Egypt because of Pharaoh's refusal to let God's people go? And, of course, that story didn't end very well for the Egyptians, which raises the question, what exactly are God's intentions in sending this plague upon his own people? And how is this going to end for them? And we get the first hint of the answer in verses 13 through 14, where Joel says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So sackcloth was this coarse, itchy material usually made out of goat or camel hair, which was woven into a garment that people would wear in times of grief and mourning or in times of repentance and sorrow over one's sin. And putting on sackcloth was kind of a visible demonstration that you were making yourself lowly before God. And Joel says, put on sackcloth and lament and wail and don't take the sackcloth off Wear it to bed and through the night. And why? Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of God, which of course was an indicator that Judah's sin had destroyed their fellowship with God. And then Joel says, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly and cry out to the Lord. So Joel sees what has happened and he says, We need to repent. We need to repent. And then Joel says in verse 15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment is near and destruction and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So it seems that Joel thinks that perhaps their repentance may spare them from this day of judgment. So, Joel's recognition of Judah's need to repent is a hint of the answer to the question, what are God's intentions in the locust plague? And how will this end for Judah? And then chapter two begins with Joel urgently saying, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. 
So judgment day is near, and now there's something even worse than locusts. It says a great and powerful people. And Joel goes on to describe these people as ones who devour with fire and flame, leaving everything in their path a desolate wilderness. And he says they look strong like horses and run like horses and leap on the tops of mountains. And just the sight of them causes faces to grow pale with anguish. And they charge like warriors and they scale walls and they do not swerve from their paths and they cannot be stopped. And they cause the earth to quake before them and the heavens to tremble and the sun and the moon to be darkened and the stars to withdraw their shining. And then we find out who these people are in verse 11, which says, the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So these people are God's own army of angels. And we've seen these guys before. Remember the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6? When the city of Dothan is surrounded by the Syrian army and Elisha's servant is freaking out, And then Elisha prays to God and says, God, open his eyes. And God opens his eyes, and then he sees all around him on these mountains that they're covered with chariots of horses and fire, and it's God's army of angels. But now, here in Joel, this army poses a threat to God's own people. And so the army of locusts was a warning and a metaphoric foreshadowing of this greater army to come, God's own army of angels. But this is still just another hint of the real answer to the question, what are God's intentions in sending the locust plague and how will this end for Judah? So here's what we know. We know that Judah's sin has destroyed their fellowship with God. And we know that this caused Joel to recognize Judah's need to repent. And we know that the locusts were just a foretaste of something much worse that is now being threatened. But look at what God says himself in chapter two, verses 12 through 13a. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. God desires his people's hearts and he will not have half-hearted devotion. We talked about this when I preached on the book of Hosea a couple weeks ago, that God is the heavenly husband of his people, his bride, and just as a wife is to give herself, her whole heart, 100% to her husband and to no one else, to no other lovers, God's people are to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul, and with all their strength, and with all their mind. But evidently, the hearts of God's people grew cold, and they strayed from their first love. And what it took for God to wake his people up, to see that their abundance of material pleasures, and things, and distractions had diverted their eyes, so that they no longer looked to him, 
was no less than a locust plague that took away everything. And so, God's intention in sending the locust plague was ultimately redemptive. He would strip everything away so that they would be left with nothing but him. And perhaps in the moment they lost everything, they'd be made to see that really they had had all they needed already, all along, in the all in all, God himself. We can afford to lose everything in this life if we have God. But to have everything in this life without God is really to have nothing at all. So God was disciplining his people, showing them tough love for their own good like a good father does for his kids. And this is another major point of the book. God disciplines us with redemptive intent. God disciplines us with redemptive intent. And so Joel had previously called Judah to repentance, and now that Judah knows that God's purpose is ultimately redemptive, he says in verse 13b, the second half of verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And that's what Judah does. And God welcomes them back. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that this is amazing because it usually doesn't turn out this way. This is great. God welcomes them back and he promises to restore the pasture for their sheep and cattle and to give life to their fields with their crops and to cause the fig trees and vines to produce fruit. And it says that their storehouses will eventually become full with grain again and their vats will overflow with oil and wine. God is going to completely restore everything that the locusts had devastated. And here, God was reminding Judah, I am with you and I am for you and I love you. And not just that, God also promises something pretty remarkable in verses 38, or rather, 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, if you recognize this passage, you know that this is what the Apostle Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, where then he was saying that these words of Joel were now being fulfilled, at least partially, and one day fully in Christ's second coming. And so, things that began pretty bad 
for Judah in chapter one have turned for good and even better by the end of chapter two. They have the promise of restoration, the promise that God is still with them, the promise that one day God will pour out his Holy Spirit upon them and dwell in them. So the tough love that God showed Judah accomplished precisely what he desired, their repentance and their return and a restored relationship with and good for his people. Amen. This is another point of the book. Our repenting and returning is God's means of restoring our fellowship with him. Our repenting and returning is God's means of restoring our fellowship with him. But then in chapter three, the focus shifts off of God and Judah and onto God and the other nations. And God says this in verses two through three, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Now the word Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat means Yahweh has judged. So God is saying that all the nations will be gathered together into the place where God will judge them for the ways they have oppressed his people. And God says at the end of verse four, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Meaning their sinful deeds, like a boomerang they've thrown, is gonna come back, back upon their head. And then Joel speaks up and says in verse 11, hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there and bring down your warriors, O Lord. But the truth is, there will be no need of warriors and there will be no battle. God will simply proclaim his judgment upon them and decree what will be their fate. Verse 12 says, let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit. He's not even gonna get up. There I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And verse 14 says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This valley is not the place where man makes his decision about God but where God makes his decision about every man. And this is a final major point of the book, that one day God will judge and punish the nations for their wicked deeds. One day God will judge and punish the nations for their wicked deeds. But Perhaps before that day comes, some will repent and turn to God and be saved. But when that day arrives, it will be too late. 
And the book of Joel ends by describing how God's final day of judgment against the wicked will bring about peace and security and even joy for God's people because justice will be served and God will right every wrong that was committed against his people. And this shows us just how much God cares for his people because God will take sin done against them personally. God will consider a sin against himself like any father would if someone harmed their child. So we see in the book of Joel that God is a father who disciplines his children because he loves them and who takes offense at sin done against them and who will cause the sins of their oppressors to return upon their own heads, and who will ultimately bring justice and right every wrong. And so the first obvious application here is that if you don't know the Lord, repent and turn to him for salvation while he may still be found. This final major point of the book is directed at you. Don't wait another day because the day of the Lord is near and judgment is coming. See that your sin has separated you from relationship with the holy God. And he is holy and righteous and beautiful and because of that he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And sin is not just a naughty thing that we do. Sin is something sick and sinister inside of us that pumps out through our hearts and into our veins and seeps into every pocket of life, touching everything, influencing everything, our every thought, our every word, our every action, our every motivation, our every desire, leading us only to destruction and away from God. We are our own worst enemies because there is an enemy inside of us, and it's us. We need to be saved from ourselves. And that's why in the fullness of time, God in his grace sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into this world ravaged as if by locusts, by our sin and filth and corruption. Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that we ought to live before the holy God but cannot and to take our sin that we deserve to have return upon our own heads, upon his own head, in a crown of thorns, and ultimately in death on a cross, so that all who will turn away from their sin and call upon his name will be saved and will receive his Holy Spirit and will be made spiritually alive in him and will be adopted into his family as sons or daughters and will belong to him and will be counted among his people forever. But for those who will not turn away from their sin and will not call upon the name of Jesus, one day they will meet the Lord in the valley of decision where he, the judge, will pronounce his final verdict over their souls for their lifetime of sin. If you don't know the Lord, repent of your sin and turn to Jesus today and be saved while there is still time and that day has not yet come. But if you do know the Lord, 
You need to know that your relationship with him is like that of a child to a good and gracious and generous and perfect father. A father like no father the world has ever seen or known. A father that will give us every good thing we have. A father that watches over us. A father that will protect us and fight for us. A father that will guide us into all wisdom and truth. A father that will comfort us. A father that is always near to us. A father who knows us intimately. A father who loves us deeply. And a father who will discipline us and show us the tough love that we need. Now I need to be clear about something. When I say the word discipline, this is not the same concept as punishment, okay? Punishment is to receive justice for a wrong committed. And we know according to Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin, the punishment for sin in the eyes of God is death. That's how grievous our sin is to the holy God, which means that if the just and holy God were to punish any of us right now for our sin, we would perish. To be punished by God is to perish. But that also means that when Jesus died on the cross, he received our punishment and carried out our death sentences which means that those who trust in Jesus will never be punished because he already was. And he has paid our sin in full. Which is why Romans 8 verses one through two says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen. But obviously this doesn't mean that we're sinless because we still sin in this life. And so, though the punishment for our sin has been dealt with in Christ's substitutionary death on a cross for us, God does discipline the children he loves. Meaning, God may bring unfavorable circumstances into our lives or take good things away from us to cause us to see that we need him as he did for Judah here in Joel. Or God may remove us from a position of power or prestige or impressiveness to humble us as he did with King Nebuchadnezzar. Or God may rebuke us by his word to give us conviction over our sin, as Jesus did with the Apostle Peter. Or God may cause our secret sins to be exposed to bring us to repentance, as he did with David through the prophet Nathan. Or God may cause some ailment or ailment to afflict us, to teach us how he is our strength in weakness as he did with the Apostle Paul. Or God may even allow us to pursue our sinful desires, to experience the consequences of sin, and to learn the hard way, as he did with Gomer in the book of Hosea. Remember that? When her adultery led her down this path that eventually ended in slavery. Or as he did with me. In that story I started 
the sermon with in the beginning, which I'm not gonna bring up again. When God taught me that sometimes you still get caught. In any case, and in every case, God disciplines us to teach us truth and wisdom and to show us what's best for us and to guide us on the path that we should go and to protect us from even greater harm and ultimately to sanctify us, making us more and more into the people that he created us to be. Hebrews 12, verses five through 11 says this, and have you forgotten the exhortations that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So a a few things kind of stick out to me in this passage. The first is that God addresses his people as sons. And then God disciplines his sons he loves like any good father does. And God disciplines us for our good. It says that we may share his holiness. And though discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, it leads to righteousness. But one other thing really sticks out to me in this passage. It's in verse eight. It says, if you are left without discipline in which all have, heart, all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Meaning, if God is not disciplining you, if he is not doing things to cause you to see that you need him, if he is not doing things to humble you, if he is not doing things to convict you of your sin, if he is not doing things to bring you to repentance, if he is not doing things to teach you that he is your strength in your weakness, if he is not doing things to allow you to learn from sin, then maybe, maybe you don't really belong to God. That's what it says. To not be disciplined by God means that God's hands are off of you. And while some may see this as kind of a freeing thing because now I just get to do whatever I want to do, it's actually a terrifying and horrible thing. And Romans 1 describes it great in several places. It describes it as God giving people over to their sinful desires which consume them. And if you don't understand why this is a terrible thing, just think of a father who tells his child, you can do whatever you want to do. Eat candy for dinner. You can watch whatever you want to on TV. You can say whatever you want to say. You can go wherever you want to go. 
You can do whatever you want to do. My hands are off. Go for it. That child will become a monster. Undisciplined children usually become uncontrollable, disrespectful, selfish, socially awkward, sometimes really unpleasant and socially dangerous to themselves and to others. These are sometimes the brats who become the bullies, who become the criminals, who sometimes even become the real monsters of society. And I think that spiritually undisciplined people become even worse. Because the proclivities of our hearts, where they will naturally go if left untouched, unrestrained and unaffected by the grace of God, is always only ever toward corruption and evil and destruction. And this is what makes the gospel such an incredible message. It's the message that Jesus was given over to our sin to save us from its consequences. And it's the message that Jesus in his grace by the Holy Spirit can melt the monster's heart. But receiving the salvation comes only through repentance and turning to Jesus. And that transformation of heart comes only through discipline, tough love, and a continual repenting and returning to him whenever our hearts wander and stray. And so the book of Joel shows us why discipline is good and something we should be thankful to have, knowing that sin destroys our fellowship with God, but that God disciplines us with redemptive intent and his discipline is designed to bring us to repentance and return and restoration. And the book of Joel also shows us that to not be disciplined is a terrifying thing because it means that God's hands are off of you. At least for now, because judgment is coming in the coming day of the Lord. But the book of Joel also points us to our hope. Another great and awesome day of the Lord 2,000 years ago when Jesus was judged for the sins of his people so that all who would call upon his name would be spared from that future destruction. And I'll just close this morning with the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, verses six and seven. It says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly forgive. So whether you are coming to the Lord today for the first time or once again, come come and be restored. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when I look back on my life and I examine my life now, Lord, and my heart into those dark places it naturally seeks to go, 
but then I see the cross where you were judged for me. Lord, I know that you have abundantly pardoned. Lord, what it took to save me was nothing less than death, but, but sacrifice. Lord God, I thank you that my sins that were once as scarlet have been washed white as snow and that now you call me your own. You call me your son. You call me your child. Lord, I want to pray for everyone here in this room this morning. Lord, that the cross of Christ, that great place where justice and mercy met, would serve as a grim warning to those who do not know you, but Lord, an encouragement to those who do and who have life in you. Lord God. Lord, I pray that as your people we would desire to follow you and throw off sins that destroy our fellowship with you. And God, that we know that in the event that you might strip everything away from our lives, that we would humbly receive your discipline, knowing that you are still good and that you discipline us with redemptive intent as a good father does with his child. So Lord God, help us in our weakness and walk with us and give us grace. Amen.